Port Hope. Port Hope, Michigan began as a lumber town. It is on Michigan's upper thumb, situated on the shore of Lake Huron. It was a boom and bust town. The lumber industry created frontier millionaires and dirty towns sprang up around the mills. Salt blocks were constructed to produce salt for export and utilized tons of debris from the sawmills as fuel. Ruman Dimon invested in lumber tracts in what would become Port Hope. By 1851, William R. Stafford bought him out and partnered with William Southern. They bought up 40-acre land warrants from the U.S. government that were set aside as pension benefits for veterans of the War of 1812. Legend says Southard was coming to see what he bought. A storm arose out on the lake, the schooner let him off, and at night, rowing in a boat against the wind, he vowed he'd name the spot Port Hope if they ever reached it. Stafford and Southard constructed sawmills and began lumbering operations. By 1858, a large dock was finished, allowing ships to transport the finished lumber. There was an 80-foot chimney at one of the mills. The bottom 9 by 10 feet is built of sandstone with an open hearth. The upper portion of the stack is built of red bricks and rises to gradually taper about another 60 feet. It still stands today. The Stafford dock extended into the lake from the sawmill was a structure of timber cribs filled with stone. The great fires of 1871 and 1881 destroyed much of Stafford's mills, docks, and millions of board feet of finished lumber. The fires devastated the declining lumbering operations. Port Hope, Michigan is a site of reconciliation for my family ancestors. A deep and painful chapter of Canadian and American history was played out in the Revolutionary War. The Gibbs family, originating with Abraham and Kezia Atwood Gibbs, their children all fought for the revolutionary side. The Miller, Bush, Weaver, Sachs, Leroy families were loyalists and most escaped to Canada during and after the war of 1775 to 1783. After fighting for years in the Revolutionary War, my fourth great-grandfather, Isaac Gibbs, moved to Missisquoi, Quebec, amongst the Loyalists in 1792. Here his son, Abraham, my third great-grandfather, born in 1806, and his brother, Hiram, born on February 2, 1812, at Farnham, Grome, Missisquoi, Quebec, to Isaac and Lydia Gibbs. This Abraham Gibbs married Anna Sachs on November 4, 1833 at Stanbridge, Quebec. This was the start of the two families in different wars for the reconciliation. Abraham and Anna Gibbs had seven children. Their names will carry on for the next generations, and two of their children would marry into the Smiths of Irish background who fought for the British Army, and the Smiths had married into the various very loyalist background families. I think they were tired of the wars. War seems to be a part of our DNA, part of human nature. It's a consequence of religious, ethnic, economic, and political differences. It's part of a greed for land, oil, prestige, and power. For a little while, my DNA matches overcame all the reasons to go to war and united in love. They overcame the vicious cycle of war, and I join their optimism that war is a choice and that these two families united and sought the alternative to love.
the children of Abraham and Anna Gibbs married into the family of James William and Mary Ann Wilson Smith. First there was John Nelson, then Aunt Rachel Francis, who married John Nicholas Smith, who was my uncle. They married in 1855 in Perth County, Upper Canada, and immigrated with both families to Gore, Michigan, to Port Hope, where George A. Minerva Estella, named after Minerva Smith, Anna Jane, and a baby were born. Aunt Rachel died in 1874 at age 38. The other Gibbs children were Carolyn, John H., George Arthur, who died as a baby, and Peter Abraham, and last, the baby of the family, Hiram Garner Gibbs, 1848 to 1913, married Mary Elizabeth Smith, 1850 to 1940. Mary Elizabeth's father, James William Smith, from Limerick, Ireland, and her mother, Mary Ann Wilson Selby, at Selby, Ontario, had married and were some of the first settlers at St. Mary's, Ontario. They were true pioneers of Upper Canada. They moved across the Huron Lake to Port Hope, Michigan, around 1855, where their last child, Lindley W. Smith, was born there on December 10, 1858. I looked up the maritime history for the Great Lakes. It was a dangerous time, with 362 disasters that year and 122 lives lost. It details a passenger steamer with the explosion of her boiler, schooners that wrecked in storms and sunk or wrecked by collision in a fog. The Smiths made the journey safely and were once again the first pioneers in the area of Huron. The land listed under the name of James Smith was the southwest quarter of the southeast quarter of section 19 and the west half of the northeast quarter and the southeast quarter section 30 in township 18 containing 160 acres bought in 1857 was fully paid and registered to him Mary Ann gave birth to their last child Glenley W. Smith on December 10th 1858 in Huron country county Michigan by 1860, there was a post office listed as Port Hope. Marianne Wilson Smith died on January 31, 1867. She was 48 years old, leaving my second great-grandmother, Mary Elizabeth, aged 17, George 13, and a young Lindley, only nine, with her husband, James William, who was 58. They'd been married for 38 years. James William Smith knew what it was like to be motherless, and he remarried three years later to Amelia Wood. They would re remain married for 25 years when she died in 1895. Perhaps the couple dined out at the Bayport Hotel, built in 1886. It was, for the time, the state of the art, having 117 heated rooms, hot and cold running water bathrooms, bowling alleys, pool tables, electric lights with highlights of a casino and a barber shop. The culinary crew of six boasted the finest in Michigan. James William Smith died five years later on December 1st, 1890 at Gore, Huron, Michigan, having reached the age of 83. The motherless lad from Ireland crossed the Atlantic Ocean in a voyage taking 12 weeks, learned to blacksmith to make a living at St. Mary's, Ontario. At the age of 50, he came to the shores of Lake Huron and used his blacksmith skills to build up Port Hope and become a farmer. After coming to live in the U.S. from Canada, 
he would read about Abe Lincoln's anti-slavery speech and lived through the Civil War. He would discuss Thomas A. Edison's first electric battery experiment erected at Port Huron. He lived through two of the worst fires in history in 1871 and again 10 years later in 1881, facing nature's frightening power. He and his family would receive help from the American Red Cross in its first disaster relief. In 1883, his grandchildren in the area would have compulsory school attendance. 1885 saw his sons in a lumber strike. The militia called out as tempers flared, and a 10-hour workday law was passed. He would marvel at the tunnel being built under the St. Clair River, linking the foreign countries he had lived in, the U.S. and Canada, when Port Huron, Michigan, and Sarnia, Ontario, are joined by the Grand Trunk Railroad Tunnel. However, he didn't quite live long enough to see the first train come through. Imagine all James William Smith did see and live through, 1808 to 1890.